You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Chris, how's it going, man? Not bad, man. Hey, you ever see World's Dumbest Criminals? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have. I was watching that before I came in. This guy robbed the bank, went home, and then snapped a picture of himself with the cash and threw it on Instagram. Just using the picture, cops were able to track him down, and now he's facing hard time. Yo, that's crazy. Do you want to know what else is crazy? This drink I'm about to school you on. It's called the painkiller. Give me the intel. It's got two ounces of your favorite rum, four ounces pineapple juice, one ounce orange juice, an ounce of cream of coconut. Throw that thing on some crushed ice. Man, I'll give that a thumbs up. Yeah, man. I gotta post this one on Twitter. Don't forget to tag me on that one. At the bar with me today from the UK is Steve Adams an intelligence specialist with a focus in internet investigations using open source intelligence or OSINT and social media intelligence. Steve is a highly skilled criminal and security intelligence analyst and researcher experienced in operational, tactical, and strategic intelligence. He's certified in OSINT investigation, an accredited financial intelligence administrator, and has received training to work on NIAT and IPP standards. He is a trailblazer on the scene by setting up a service offering Intel training himself via intelligencewithsteve.com. Steve, thank you for joining me at the bar today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that great introduction. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about you and your background and sort of what made you focus in on OSINT or open source intelligence. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, as you were saying, I'm a, I'm a criminal and security intelligence specialist. So I work specifically in the detection and prevention of crime and security incidents. So my first uh, role in the field really was as an intelligence analyst and I was working for the police. Uh, that role didn't particularly involve any OSINT work or internet investigation. Um, so I was primarily specializing in analyzing acquisitive and violent crime. Um, and then doing a little bit of work in serious um, organized crime and just sort of targeting those organized crime groups. Um, so my work really involves looking at large data sets and identifying trends and patterns in that data that suggested that a crime series was occurring or that specific offenders were involved. Intelligence really is the process of collecting and collating information and then adding value to it through analysis and evaluation to get into a point where it's actionable and decision makers can then do something about the information that you have. Um, so it's really done to identify optimal allocation of resources, looking at how to predict, prevent and monitor activity, and then sort of identifying opportunities to prepare or protect against future activity. So that's really what I was involved with when I started out. It wasn't until my current role that I started specializing in internet investigations. Um, so currently I work in a private sector law enforcement team uh, that's responsible for protecting national infrastructure here in the UK. Um, so my role or job title is intelligence researcher. Um, so I'm involved in a number of different things. 
but my focus is in the field called 3I, which stands for uh, Internet Intelligence and Investigation. And most people listening to this podcast will probably refer to this as OSINT or Open Source Intelligence. Uh, that's because 3I is primarily a UK law enforcement term that's only sort of really starting to appear as the primary term here. And there is a, a slight difference between what OSINT is and what 3I is. Um, and that sort of boils down to two points. Um, firstly, it's all internet-based, whereas open source intelligence doesn't have to be on the internet. And then secondly, not everything that you look at within internet investigation is open source data. Um, nice. I generally say that there's as many as four different types of information that's on the internet. And you collect all of that through 3i activity. And those uh, four types are open source information, quasi open source information, quasi closed source information, and then closed source information. I guess as a, a 3i specialist, I collect and I analyze all of those four types of information. And ultimately, I specialize in what's called people searching. So I look for specific individuals over the internet and I identify relevant information that pertains to them. Mm. That could be information relating to locations where they are, particularly, you know, where they're living or where their partners live, as well as just looking at their general lifestyle, who their family members are, who their associates are, and just really building up a, a great picture on who that person is and putting together anything that's going to benefit law enforcement in either locating them or in prosecuting them for crimes that they are believed to have committed. Interesting. Is there a reason why it's only internet focused and you're not using any other open source tool? Is it because of legal restrictions or is it mainly because that's where the information you're looking for resides? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the latter really. That's where sort of everyone puts everything about themselves these days. Mm -hmm. um, so anything you can find in physical form, you can find on the internet and it's probably much easier to find on the internet. So that's really why we specialize in finding it through that sort of medium. Do you ever have to engage with specific individuals or is it always one-sided recon? Um, so generally, um, most internet investigation is sort of passive non-contact. Mm -hmm. um, when you're looking to make contact, um, it still falls under internet investigation and an internet investigator. Um, but there are a lot of sort of legal um, requirements that you have to hit before you can get to that stage. And you need undercover training, at least in the UK, because there is legislation that says that, you know, you have to be doing this in the appropriate way. You just have to give them the respect and the openness that, you know, they have their right to privacy. And, you know, we can't be going about them and trying to entice them to commit crime or pushing them to tell us something that we're not, we wouldn't be able to ask them in a, an interview situation. Um, so you need that training and you need the permissions and that has to be authorized by the appropriate individuals. Mm. Um, so as an internet investigator, I can't make contacts unless I have approval from a very senior member in my organization that has risk assessed that and told me you can't be doing this or you can be doing this. Gosh, I'm sure it could raise red flags, you know, on their end. Um, especially if they're being investigated for something or, or they're, uh, they're on the run or whatever the situation is. I'm not sure that could be a, a delicate situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you are making contact, you're, you're burning your open source account. 
Um, so it's mm. a, a big risk on your side and their side. So it really just does need that assessment taking place to make sure that ultimately it's the best thing that you can do in that situation. Gotcha. Now, from an organizational standpoint, in terms of you know large banks or healthcare, are you able to explain a little bit about how open source intelligence could assist those type of organizations since they're not online looking for potential criminals, but is there any way that open source intelligence could help them in terms of locating adversaries or protecting against cyber attacks? Yeah. So, I mean, I generally break down OCG into, into three areas. So that would be your cybersecurity and cyber threat intelligence area, which is probably the area you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. And then the law enforcement, national security side. And then the final one would be sort of the investigative journalism side. So in terms of the, the first one, cybersecurity, which is what you're asking about there, you know, I'm, you, you know, you will know better than I do that IT systems are continuously being attacked by criminal actors looking to disrupt services and do damage. So in response to this threat, private companies do have staff members conducting OSINT activity. And this is something that any company really can bring on. And regardless of where you sit in, what your role is in cybersecurity or just security of a company, um, you'll be using the same sort of techniques. So it doesn't necessarily matter what your job title is. Um, so it can sort of break down into proactive OSINT activity and more of a defensive proactive—sorry, uh, defensive OSINT activity. Um, so in terms of proactive, you'd be looking to identify how actors could exploit your business and its systems using OSINT. Um, so the criminal actors themselves will use OSINT against your organization. So you are using OSINT against your organization in sort of a penetration testing way to identify how they could use those techniques to exploit you. Um, so something could be looking at the company website and looking at LinkedIn and establishing the internal hierarchy of your organization, because offenders might use this as part of a social engineering attack against you uh, by you know, sending an email from your boss asking you to do something. So if you can establish all the members of an organization through LinkedIn and the website, that's a risk to your business and you need to risk assess against that. Mm-hmm. A lot of businesses also tell you what IC, um, IT systems they're using on their website, which again, that means that those attackers then know what to sort of look for. So again, it's just minimizing everything that's on the internet or at least risk assessing against it so that you can then provide training to your team to minimize that damage. If a company is posting a job rack and they're posting certain technology they use and actually name of solutions, names of vendors, it could be detrimental because if there's a vulnerability for that specific system that they're looking for someone to come in and manage, that's putting them at a level of exposure as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, from a tooling standpoint, I know you're you're particularly focused on the internet with your current role, but any other tools or any enterprise tools out there that an organization would be able to leverage, whether it's OSINT or whether it's a web-based tool using open source technology that would that would help them or benefit them? Yeah. So I mean, one aspect that you can look at is sort of social listening. Um, so that's like looking at social media, forums, 
blogs, all sorts of areas on the internet where people are posting things and scanning those posts for content that is relevant to you and your organization. Um, so options in that area are some that are designed specifically for security, maybe LifeRaft Navigator. But then you also have things like, um, not LifeRaft, sorry, um, Raiderly. So Raiderly is a system that is developed for the marketing world. It works in a very similar way to LifeRaft. And you will put in your parameters, say you're looking for these keywords between these time dates, and then it will bring back um, sort of all of the posts that are relevant to you and sort of do the collation and basic steps of analysis that you need to do within the system um, so that you can do a lot more of the, the focused analysis as the individual yourself and leave the collection to the system. Um, there's also systems that are, I guess, more of an investigative tool. Um, so something like Scope Now, um, that's a tool that's been developed by a guy uh, called Rod Douglas. He's got a great team working with him. Um, and that tool uses data from a lots of different sources, um, a big one being PIPL, or PEOPLE, as some people pronounce it, which is, I guess, consented data, uh, as well as you know social media profiles that belong to individuals, um, their phone numbers, their email addresses. Um, so you can type in the name of any person you're looking for and the location into Scope Now, and it will put together a sort of an automated profile on the best matches of data it can find for that individual online. So this is really good for people that don't have the internet investigations training like uh, myself. So it probably isn't going to bring back everything that I would. But if you don't have anyone that has that training in your organization, that's a really good way for you to have that basic intelligence collection taking place so that you can sort of risk assess those people and find out everything about them online um, so that you can then use that to action a sort of a more physical investigation where you would have investigators working on that data. When you're referring to entering parameters in and keywords and it's bringing back these posts, is there any way that you can verify the authenticity of those posts without having to do some legwork? I'm sure when you enter these parameters, you may have you know a flood of information that comes in. Is there an easy way to kind of weed out what may not be legitimate or is that still a manual process at this point? I think ultimately it's still a manual process. I mean, these, these systems that are being developed are trying to incorporate that in and they're probably some of them doing it to a certain extent. I personally, I'm not comfortable enough trusting those systems yet. So I would always manually go through that and um, sort of do that scanning for misinformation or disinformation myself. Got it. And for listeners out there that have shared confidential information online or exposed information on various platforms, you know, this is definitely a concern for them just knowing that that technology exists and not from the triple I standpoint or from an investigative standpoint, but just from a malicious standpoint. You know, if if a stalker is trying to hunt them down, it could be scary if they have these tools at their disposal. A lot of people I know that have taken some of these posts down or if they're on social media, you know, people I try to talk to, I, I try to always explain the dangers of sharing too much information. 
should they still be concerned if information that resided on a website is no longer available? And are there ways for attackers or investigators to still access that information if they were to know what that specific website or URL was? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right that that is a concern for people. And, you know, I'm a, an individual as well as an internet investigator, and it sort of concerns me as well. There are ways that you can still get hold of information that's been deleted. A big thing that is involved in that is it's the, called the sort of Internet Archive or sort of the Wayback Machine, as it's also known. So anyone in the world can use this tool to archive any page on the Internet on any day at any time. And the Internet Archive records that page as it looks and will store it. So if I deleted something, well, if I capture something on my website today, if I delete it tomorrow, the web page still exists how it did yesterday in the Internet Archive. So you need to be aware of that, that everything you're putting on the Internet can still be there, even if you've deleted it, you know, a week later. Mm. And even in terms of social media, you, can, you might delete a post but there are still ways that you can, other people can get, see that post. So if someone's replied to it and you might be able to find it that way, even if you've deleted it, or even some systems are sort of capturing the posts that are being made and storing them themselves. So, I mean, even, you know, LifeRef Navigator, I think, I believe that's one of them that for a limited time period, if it has captured your post under those keywords, even if you delete it, it will maintain it for a certain period of time. Yeah, it's, so, it's like a snapshot, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So where, I guess, do you draw the line for what is legal and what is unethical? I, and I understand with your role, um, there may not be a line, really, because you're trying to get as much information as you can for law enforcement. But if you're an organization and you know you hear these stories about HR going out there and part of their candidate selection process may be looking at potential candidates' social media footprint or seeing seeing what they do offline. And I know that may be a bad example, but you know, what's the legal limitation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's actually something that's really interesting to talk about. And um, I guess I'm really glad you brought it up because you know, you were saying working in law enforcement, it's probably that I don't have those uh, parameters in place, but I'd actually say we work to them a lot more strongly than a lot of private organizations do. Mm. And I think okay. a lot of people don't necessarily factor in that and do the risk assessment of what they should and shouldn't be doing. A lot of OSIN these days is very much what can you do and not what should you do. And I think... There is a major problem, um, I mean, just on your question as the initial response, um, there's a big problem with legislation and legislating OSINT because of the global nature of the internet. Um, so it's really hard to legislate that because you might have an internet investigator in San Francisco that's doing work on a subject in Belarus. So does US law apply here? Does Belarusian law, do both countries' laws apply? And then sort of there's no global agreement on what the law should be in terms of protection of people's rights on the internet. You know, it's really hard for anyone that's doing internet investigation to sort of know where the line is, I guess, because in the UK, in law enforcement, I know we work to I think five or six different pieces of legislation that restrict what we can do. 
a lot of organizations here aren't working to those same requirements. So something that, you know, we have to do is uh, we can't look into someone unless we have reason to believe that they are a criminal actor or they are a threat to national security. And that falls in under GDPR and the Data Protection Act and the ECHR, which says that you have a right to privacy. So we just can't look at you unless we have absolute reason to do that. Mm. And then even when we do, we have to use our activity in certain ways. So it has to be non-contact unless we have authorization to make undercover activity. And generally, you know, you only have one engagement on a social media profile. So you can't actively monitor someone on the internet without authorization to do that again. And I know a lot of people that are doing OSIN in the private sector are sort of continually monitoring people who they believe are bad actors. And, you know, ultimately, you know, in the UK, you just can't do that. And yet they're still doing it because they don't really, they've never been given the training that says, this is how you should do it legally. Because, you know, a big part of, I think it's something like 85% of CTI specialists have potentially not had any OSIN training. And yet they're being tasked with doing OSIN collection. And I think that's a big failing of the employers rather than the individuals, because they're the ones ultimately responsible for the activity that's taking place. Mm. And they're failing to properly prepare their staff for the work that they're asking them to do. And again, this is non-invasive. This is not hacking someone's account and reading their private messages. This is all freely available, publicly available information online. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think the problem is a lot of people think something's on the internet and they put it there themselves. So it's free for everyone to use. And ultimately it's not. Uh, people still have rights to privacy. And a lot of people either don't realize or just ignore that. Very interesting. And then again, you have the GDPR and you have these other regulatory requirements that could vary per state or per country. I'm sure that gets interesting as well. If you have a potential suspect or someone you're, you're watching and they relocate to another country, does that change the scope of your engagement? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, GDPR in your example, it applies to the EU, really. So if you're looking for an American in America and you're out, you know, even if you're sort of living sort of in Africa, you know, you might be doing that work. And really, there is no legislation that's overarching there. So people sort of treat it as a free-for-all. And you get people in the EU that are like, oh, they're outside of the EU, so does GDPR even apply here? Um, so they're still doing that same activity again, where, you know, they're, they're looking for people. And, you know, something I'd say is you see individuals in the private sector or journalists that are using measures um, to locate people that are of, you know, public interest. And, you know, potentially, if, that per if they're looking for someone that's a criminal, they are sometimes interfering with police investigations and doing it in the, you know, the name of public interest. Um, but I'm not sure they're necessarily always considering that ultimately they could be charged with interfering with a police investigation. Um, so when private companies are looking into criminals, they do need to risk assess against that and go, should we be doing this or is this for law enforcement to do? Gotcha. And if that word gets out, other people that may be involved or closely involved with the defendant in the case or within the court system, 
once they find out that all of this information is public, then you have a whole bunch of people trying to get in on it. And I'm sure there's a, 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 a level there where, you know, a lot of that can't get disclosed out to the public when you're doing these investigations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look back to say Ghislaine Maxwell, not that long ago, a lot of people online were trying to find her. And, you know, ultimately, you know, that was the job for law enforcement and whether they, they potentially knew where she was and there was a reason it wasn't publicly available and they hadn't caught her or, you know, they were still looking for her. But ultimately, it was their job to find her and people trying to find her and putting that online, you know, compromises the work that the police are doing. And ultimately, it can affect your investigation so much that it might get thrown out in court. Wow. And, you know, it's, you know, it's unlikely in that case that people find her online was going to result in, you know, no action being taken. But I mean, that's just an example of people doing it. But the reason that we work to sort of strict parameters in internet investigation and law enforcement is because, you know, courts and particularly judges just throw out cases or the evidence gathered via the internet if it's done slightly incorrectly. So you don't want people that don't know what they're doing, you know, throwing their weight around and trying to get involved and then risking, you know, compromising that intelligence. Yeah. I saw a show on Netflix not long ago called Don't F With Cats. It's essentially about a group of these online vigilantes who try to hunt down this guy who posted a video online of himself killing kittens. And this guy ultimately became one of Canada's most infamous murderers. They hosted this Facebook group and performed their own open source intelligence that led them on this insane international virtual manhunt. And what's scary is that the killer found out about this group, joined it under a false alias, and was able to evade police by using his own open source intelligence he obtained from the group. And it actually became real when he threatened one of the group's leaders personally. So the point of this is to understand a potential level of danger involved when you have people pursuing criminals in high profile cases in parallel with law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if people want to get involved in OSINT, there, there are opportunities where they can get involved and do OSINT for goods. There's organizations that are working in that area. Um, and I guess that's a much better way for people to get involved because those organizations ultimately are responsible for managing that. So they'll be doing a lot more risk assessment in case of, is the offender going to be getting involved here and making sure that that doesn't happen rather than a random person setting it up? Yeah, They're, I'm sure they have good intention, but they, they could ultimately you know, be a distraction to, to real law enforcement in pending cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, people like, there's organizations like Locate, Trace Labs, the Innocent Lies Foundation. Uh, that's just a few organizations that are using OSINT to assist law enforcement rather than trying to do the work instead. Um, and they, they work specifically with law enforcement and like directly with them, the sort of open source work out into the community to do some good work and then pass it through law enforcement rather than, you know, going out and doing a witch hunt themselves that is trying to replace the part of law enforcement in that role. Yeah, def definitely makes sense. So there are many different platforms that are coming out now i mean you, you've always had your facebook your twitter your instagram and now you have like 
TikTok was recently in the news and there's always something where you're able to share information. So I think all of the data sources are just continuing to grow with what investigators or adversaries can look at and find online about a certain individual. And I'm thinking from a cybersecurity standpoint, you know, a CEO or a CISO of a company, just sharing too much online, even about their personal life, gives these attackers ammo to attack them with either a phishing campaign or something to grab their interest. As an OSINT and social media intelligence expert, could you kind of define some of the ways that are best to protect our information online, whether it's an organization or whether it's you know, an everyday user that just likes to post a lot online, what would you say is, is, um, is a reasonable amount or what are, what is the best way to really protect information and not become a target? Yeah. So, I mean, from the, I guess the security point of view, you know, there's tools that you'll want to put in place in terms of, you know, using tools like Authy that are going to be sort of multi-factor authentication to make sure that, you know, your accounts are restricted because a big thing really is the fact that criminal actors can take hold of your account and use it themselves. Um, so if you're the CEO of an organization, you're ultimately at big risk of someone trying to hack into your account and saying things that you wouldn't say, which could, you know, massively impact the value of your organization. So you need to really put in place measures to stop that access taking place. So that multi-factor authentication is a really great tool as well as password managers. You know, we need different passwords for every different system that we're using. So if one is compromised, then the other ones are still protected. Um, so a tool like LastPass, um, there's ones that you can download to just your computer. So they're not stored online as well. But I think LastPass is a great approachable system that everyone could use um, and just sort of get those passwords um, management systems there. I mean, I have so many passwords, there's no way I could feasibly remember all of them. <laughs> and they're random 32 character sequences. It would take me ages to type them out. So having that tool there that manages that means that I don't have to worry. And the same thing goes when you're in internet investigation. You need to have a different password for every account you use because a password breach can then link all of your different fake accounts or your sock puppets together. So if someone gets hold of um, Dehashed, which is, a, a, tool, which is a, a website that you can sign up for, you just pay an amount of money. It's sort of an add-on to have I been pawned. So you can type in your email address and it tells you all of the breaches that you've been involved with and what your password was. But you can also search by passwords. So if you put in one password, you can see all of the different breaches that that password has been involved in, which can then link you to a bunch of different social media accounts. So whether or not you're the CEO or whether or not you're an internet investigator, this one password then links you to, you know, every different social media account that's been breached with that password. It's really important to have a different password for every account just to sort of put that protection in place. But I mean, in terms of the actual content that you're putting out, it's, it's sort of hard to protect against it. Ultimately, you're looking at the restrictions on the social media sites themselves. Um, so making it so that only your contacts can view that information. Because ultimately, you know, if you're sharing it and it's going out to the whole world, that means, you know, everyone can see it and that increases the criminal access that can use it against you. It's, it's sort of what we were talking about earlier. You sort of have to recognize that everything you put on the internet 
is there and it's there forever. You either don't put it there at all or you do your best to protect how you're putting it out there. Definitely. I totally agree. It's funny you mentioned Have I Been Pwned. I had Troy Hunt on the show okay, and uh, he, uh, he just ended up open sourcing that not long ago. So it's, I'm curious to see how that goes with you know, the community uh, maintaining that service. I just see that getting better and better. And hopefully, uh, you know, it's already, it's already known in the security field, but reaching outside of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I mean, we use it in the internet investigation world um, and ultimately it's designed to protect people and yet we're using it for an investigative reason. Yeah, absolutely. For the paranoid, <laughs> and that's a, a large <laughs> uh, percentage of us cybersecurity professionals, um, we try to be very careful on what our digital footprint is, and but it's it's very difficult. And in today's world, where so much communication is done online and in public view, you know, do you have any recommendations on ways to stay online and stay connected, but still stay in stealth mode? Is it burner accounts? Is it you know, are there things that, you know, people can do to not completely go off the grid, but stay in tune with what's going on, be able to communicate without having a lot of that tracking turned on? Or is that even possible? Yeah, so it's possible to certain degrees. So in terms of, you know, messaging people, you know, most of the world is using WhatsApp and it's, you know, end to end encrypted Mm-hmm. Or it's owned by Facebook, and you have to risk assess that and go, you know, Facebook is potentially going to be accessing that data somehow. You know, we look at Cambridge Analytica as the scandal, you know, a while ago, and all the analytics that Facebook is doing on its users, um, even in terms of just looking at who your network is by looking at the contacts you store in your phone in WhatsApp. It's you look for different messaging apps instead of. WhatsApp, and there's some really great ones out there that are designed with a security focus in mind. Signal, I guess, is the major one, and Signal is looking to expand even further. So I, I think that's really going to come up, you know, in the next year or so as like, you know, a major rival to WhatsApp. Um, and that's an, that's an open source system developed in the US, um, and it really exists to protect the individual rather than exploiting them how WhatsApp might. Um, so again, everything's end-to-end encrypted and you can only message people that have signal. Um, so it's, I mean, that's a great method. Um, there's another one called Session, which is another messaging app that's developed on the signal um, infrastructure. Um, but that essentially destroys your messages after you've sent them and it, it creates what it calls sessions. So you will create one session. So you and I would message each other We'd have our conversation and then at the end we delete it. And then the next time we chat, we would have to create a new session so that that data isn't stored. It's not on the app. No one has access to it, even yourselves. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a great option and people should be considering things like session and signal rather than the apps that everyone uses like WhatsApp. The problem with these apps though is you can only message people that have the same app. So that's why everyone is using WhatsApp because right. the whole world has it. So it's really, it's, the problem is trying to convince the world that security should be a focus. And ultimately, for the ease of using these systems, you're selling your personal data. And I think that's, you know, that's the biggest issue we face in trying to protect ourselves, because ultimately, you and I have to decide, 
You know, I would rather use Signal because I think it protects me much better than WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. My family aren't using Signal. So, you know, how do I then contact them? So I either use WhatsApp and Facebook can read it, or I use text messaging and the government can read it. <laughs> right. Like you said, it kind of goes back to really who owns the platform, who runs the platform. Because when you look at VPNs too, there are some VPNs out there that claim they don't do logging, but you look into it a little bit more and they may do logging. I mean, you kind of have to do some legwork and lean on research that has been done with some of these platforms to actually confirm that they're doing what they advertise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the most popular ones, you know, are ones that potentially you can't trust. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do have to do that research and trust those experts in the field um, that are doing it for you. But ultimately, you know, it's your responsibility to protect yourself. Um, So always, I would always encourage people to do their own research where possible and just consider what matters to them so that they're risk assessing themselves rather than what that specialist thinks. Exactly. And it goes back to what I tell people that post on Facebook that it may be, you know, limited to who can view that post. Maybe, you know, the 20 people on your friends list or whatever that see that post, but the mindset that you have to have is that everyone can see it because once that data is stored down the road, you don't know what Facebook's going to do, or you don't know who's going to even hack your account. And that's why you said passwords and passwords are important because if someone hacks that account, they have those private messages that they can access and then post on another public account for everyone to see. So oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're never really a hundred percent safe, even when you think you are. No. And I guess, you know, you can try to do that as you were saying, like with covert accounts, but ultimately, you know, it, it becomes a hassle because do you connect to your friend's main account? Do they have a covert account? How do you track whose covert account is whose? And you're just getting into an area of, you know, it becomes so complicated trying to communicate with people. Yeah, exactly. So, Steve, can you tell us a little bit about the training platform that you devised? What type of courses are offered and, you know, what's the the website again? Can anyone register? Do you have to have any prerequisites to be able to take advantage of some of the courses that you that you created? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's called Intelligence with Steve. You can go to intelligencewithsteve.com. It's a business that primarily was focused on criminal and security intelligence. And, you know, once it had gone live, you know, I'm seeing it expanding and people in other industries and disciplines, particularly, you know, cyber uh, protection are sort of also really interested in the content that's going out because it's applicable outside of intelligence. So ultimately, it's sort of broken down into, you know, a few different areas. So the first one being, you know, introduction to intelligence. This looks at what intelligence is as a concept, as well as, you know, all the different products that you put together and all the different analytical theories that you might want to approach um, when you're starting working intelligence. And then the sort of different ways that you can develop your training through intelligence with Steve beyond that. Um, So one is OSINT. So there's two OSINT courses, one which is in legal theory, and that's particularly relevant for UK citizens because it bases it on the UK legislation and the EU legislation. But as we were saying before, legislation is so broad and sort of hard to navigate that you can sort of use that legislation as a framework no matter where you are in the world, just to ensure that you're using um, the techniques ethically. So I think that that can be relevant to everyone, really. And then there's a course in 
uh, open source intelligence techniques. And that sort of takes you through all of the different ways that you can use OSINT or internet investigation more broadly um, to gather intelligence on a person. You know, we're talking about social media intelligence, which is, you know, all the different social media sites, as well as, you know, collecting information through domains and, you know, how you store all that information in a profile. And then ultimately, the new course I'm working on at the minute is intelligence analysis. Um, that was intended to go live this month. Uh, there might be a little delay on that because I'm looking at bringing on some other guys to assist me with that and put together uh, a much better, more comprehensive course than I'd initially planned that is hopefully going to be a bit of a game changer in how intelligence analysis training works. Um, intelligence analysis training, at least in the UK, has always worked one way. And it's, you know, you go on site, you do two weeks training, then you go away and that's the, all the training you'll get. And you generally get it two or three years into your job when you've already done all of that content. And so you sort of just get in a certificate that tells you what you already know. Um, so we want to look at delivering that training much earlier in people's careers um, and providing it in a much more sort of structured way. When you go on, you know, these live training sessions on site, you're working on different information on each project and you sort of learn the individual technique, but you don't follow it through. Um, so we're hopefully going to try and use the same information and data from the start all the way through to the end of the project um, so that you can really see how one piece of information and one set of data can be used to go through the whole intelligence cycle. So that's sort of what we provide as a, a company. Um, but, you know, the reason that Intelligence with Steve is potentially different from other intelligence training companies is the way that we provide our information and our training packages. Um, so the thing that makes us sort of distinct is that it's pre-recorded online lectures. Um, so as I was saying, most intelligence training is delivered on-site. You go there, you write down what they're saying, you go away, and that's, that's your lot. Mm -hmm. Whereas with our training, you get 12 months access to the content. So you can watch it as you're doing the work. And, you know, that's a great way from my point of view of learning because you're getting trained as you're doing it. And then you can go back and watch it if you need help again uh, later on when you're doing the same task again, because, you know, you're not always using these techniques every day. So if you're not doing them every day, you forget how it works. Right. So I think that's a really great way for people to sort of develop their expertise on the job. And, that's you know, fantastic. You, and, yeah, and it's on 12 demand. months access. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's another problem with the training. It's that, you know, you work to someone else's schedule. So I can only go and get the training, you know, when the instructor tells me they have a spot. But, you know, because it's on demand, if you want to get the training at 2 a.m. on a, you know, on a Sunday, you can get that training then. Right. And that's important. And, and especially with the, the COVID era that we're in now, you kind of need to have that flexibility. I think that is is really great. And I think it's a topic that more individuals should get involved with and become aware of. And just having that type of training on demand and at your fingertips is is really a great thing that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad it's uh, hitting the mark as intended. And, you know, I really, you know, I do hope that people do start looking into this as an option. And it doesn't have to be with me. You know, there are more and more companies that are looking to try and sort of get that same sort of training online. But yeah, I think it is a much more approachable way to do training and it allows you to get the training when you need it most. How can others find you online? What is your online footprint? 
what are some other ways that our listeners can keep in tune with what you're doing? Yeah, so um, I guess most actively I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, the easiest way to find me on LinkedIn is through my website. Um, on my website, there is a, a sort of a social media section and that links straight through to my LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter, which isn't massive yet, um, is still something I'm sort of not... Re- I'm using whenever I post something on LinkedIn, ultimately. Um, so if you have Twitter rather than LinkedIn, you can still follow me there. I just don't have as big of a following, so I probably don't engage as much. In the next month or so, I'm looking to really ramp up that YouTube channel. Currently in the process of updating a lot of my uh, lectures. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to then update what is held on YouTube so that if you don't want to pay for my course and you just want to get a bit of an example of what I'm offering, you can watch those videos, see some of the the concepts that I'm covering on my courses. Very good. And I'll get those links posted online so our listeners can uh, tune in and easily access where they can reach you. Thanks, guys. So this is Barcode Podcast and it's last call. So I have one last question for you before you take off. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? So that is, that will take a second because uh, I guess I'm not at the, uh, the dad joke stage of my life where I can uh, <laughs> quickly come up with those jokes, those puns. But, you know, ultimately, I know people, you know, it's sort of a, an in-joke to people, you know, in internet investigation, you're a bit of a bounty hunter. My, uh, my team, Trace Lab CTFs, is the Mandalorians. Let's call it the drink, the Boba Fett, and we'll call the bar the hunting ground. The hunting ground. I like that. I might go into that, you know. That's, that's a great idea. That would be my retirement package. Yeah. Very good. I won't take up any more of your time, Steve. I appreciate you joining and, and open sourcing your intelligence with us. Everyone needs to go check out intelligencewithsteve.com. Check out some of the courses and I uh, look forward to catching up again soon, possibly at a, at a real bar. Absolutely, Chris. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great talking to you. All right, Steve. Take care, man. You too, mate. See ya. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.